Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is quite practical and contemporary that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in your daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. We live in a uh, society, in a generation today, where most people tend to identify themselves in what they do more than in who they are. Sometimes that may not seem to be a problem, but at other times the problem really comes to the surface very vividly, very clearly. It wasn't too long ago I was talking to a young man in his 20s. He has just got out of the Marines. He was deployed in Iraq several times. And he had enlisted in the Marines at 17. You might say, okay, we know a number of people like that, stories like that. But what makes this one unique is that he enlisted in the Marines at a time where he was asking himself the question, who am I? And he wanted to find himself. So he joined the Marines. And of course, as they train them for war, they give him a strong sense of identity with the team they are part of. And so his identity became what he does as a Marine. So he had his first tour of duty and then the second one. And the time came when then afterwards he was discharged. I honestly don't remember the reasons for the discharge. I think it was a medical reason, but I don't remember for sure. But whatever the reason for the discharge, he still has an honorable discharge. It has a couple of decorations for the service that he did to this country. And as I talked with him, I noticed that just about every other word, he would say the word Marines. So I started questioning that and asking him, how come? He says Marines so many times. He couldn't explain that very well. So I asked him, are you still, are you still shielding yourself? And when I use the word shielding, a lot of things came back to his mind, of course. And he said, yeah, I think I am. Our conversation went a little further until 
I heard him saying something that stuck with me, and I think it will be stuck with me for a long time. Because I told him, after, it, you know, about a long conversation, I told him, well, maybe the time has come for you to look forward to not having to shield yourself anymore and just allow yourself to be who you are. And he said, who am I? But he said it in a tone and in a way that told me that's really the core of his struggles. Who am I? And you know, you can see the picture there, right? That's why every other word, almost, he puts the word Marines, because that was his identity. But now that identity is gone. He's not doing those things anymore. And what's left? It's a big question. Because when you lost your identity, then what's left? Not much. Look at the issue that Paul is addressing here in Galatians. We started talking about that in the last couple of weeks. We, started, we, we began describing it as a struggle between the law and the need for the law and grace and the need for grace. Paul is making it very clear and very strong in here that you don't have to put yourself under the law as a Jew in order to be a Christian. And we explain the reasons for that. But think about that for a second. What is the law of the Old Testament all about? It's about what you do. And what you don't do. It's about rituals. And rituals are things you do. It's about a number of things that are pertaining to our behavior, what we do. So in a sense, the question that I raised at the beginning is really not a strange question to this topic because, after all, it is a matter of identifying ourselves in what we do or in who we are. And we'll see a little more about that in just a moment. So with that in mind, with that question in mind, who are you? Who am I? Are we defined by what we do? And then where we can't do that anymore, we are lost, like that young man. Or are we defined by who we are? And therefore we do things that are consistent with who we are. You might say, well, 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 it's a very simple concept. And yes, it is. Most scriptural concepts are very, very simple. A child can understand them, but they have very profound implications that change the lives of people. This is one of them. You just won't believe how many people come in for counseling distressed and destroyed almost, falling apart, shattered to pieces because they don't grasp this concept. So let's look at this passage and understand it a little better. I want to show you how God or what God has to say about it, but in order to do that, let's understand the passage first and then we'll draw the conclusions together. Verse 15. Verse 15, Paul addresses the matter of uh, the law with an analogy. The analogy is a very common one. 
The analogy is the analogy of a contract. Now, by the way, some people would find objection to that because at, at elsewhere, he uses a similar analogy in a different meaning. But please understand one thing. Whenever you use an analogy, whenever you use a figure of speech in a certain context, you have to limit the parable, you have to limit the analogy to the intended purpose. You can't take it out of that context, apply somewhere else, and compare with another analogy given for a different reason in a different context, and say, ah, look, you have a contradiction. No, you don't. You're just misreading it. Okay? If I tell you I'm going to walk a mile, some of you understood me saying I'm going to go and leave this room, walk a mile up the block. Some of you understood it differently as a figure of speech, meaning I'm going to go out of my way to accommodate something. It's the same phrase, but you're using it in two different contexts and it has two different meanings. Similarly, although Paul doesn't use the same phrase, but he uses similar analogies in different contexts and some of them has different meanings because of different applications. And so some scholars address that and they will get into the depths of whether you should or should not compare the two, whether it is a contradiction or not. Well, it isn't for the reasons I just mentioned. This analogy here says, what about a contract? Well, you make a contract with somebody, right? And after that contract is accepted by both people, you can't change that contract. You cannot go back unilaterally and say, look, I want to add something to that contract. I can just imagine some vendors, what they would do. They would strike a contract with you to sell you this cup for $10, and then unilaterally they say, you know what, the price of the cup went up. It's now $100, so you owe me $100. Oh, no. Wait a minute. We have a contract, and you cannot recede from a contract. You have a commitment that you made with me, and I have it in writing in your estimate that this is what it's going to be. Similarly, God had a contract, a promise that he made to Abraham, almost like a notice in writing that God had stated certain things to Abraham, and afterwards, he would not recede from that. He would not turn back from that because... It just, even from a human perspective, it doesn't make any sense that that would be the case. And why did Paul say that? Well, here it is, verse 16. Now, but before we go to verse 16, let me tell you one more thing about that. The law, it's not that the law was not needed or didn't have any purpose. It just had a different purpose, and it did not interfere with the promise made to Abraham. You can't say the promise to Abraham and the law are against each other. No, they have different purposes. They have a different goal. They are both given by God. They both serve a, an important purpose, but the law serves a different purpose, and it seeks to accomplish different things. Verse 16, God made promises to Abraham and to his descendants, right? He didn't say, and to your descendants, plural, which would mean many people, but God said, and to your descendant, singular. That means only one person, Christ. Some people see a problem with that. But before we go to address the problem, let's connect it with the previous verse. And here's what it is, that God promised to Abraham that all the nations, the whole world, would be blessed 
in his descendant, singular, Christ. So basically, God told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you the world. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your descendant, and which is Messiah, and to you as a result of that, and to all the nations, and to all the people. Well, that is quite a, a big promise. It's quite an important promise, right? But it was not conditional to something that Abraham had to do or that his descendants would have to do. It was a promise that was given to Abraham, and that was it. Abraham, this will happen. Now, what is one characteristic of Abraham? God had promised him a son. Abraham never saw the son until way, 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 way late into his life. But Abraham believed the promise of God. Why was that so important? Because now God was making a promise to Abraham, a promise that did not have conditions, and Abraham believed that, and that's what was accounted to him as righteousness, not the fact that he jumped through some loops or, or performed some ceremonies, but he believed God, he trusted God, and accepted his promise, and believed that promise, even though he wouldn't see, and he couldn't see the fulfillment of it at that time. But let's go to the problem of verse 16. Some people see a problem in, in the argument that Paul uses here because most people would understand the text from Genesis that Paul refers to and in, in I will bless all nations in your descendants or in your, or your seed. And most people will look at that and say, well, wait a second, hold on a moment. That word translated seed or descendant it's really never used in the plural. So why is Paul making an argument about plural or singular? It's always used in a singular to say the people that come out of you, your lineage, the people that will follow you, that tend to multiply with the generations. So the problem arises here. People tend to argue on that, and some people try to explain it one way, and some people try to explain it another way. So how do we understand that? Is Paul making a fake argument here? Is, did God inspire him to say something that is not quite the case? Well, first of all, let's point out that the word is in the singular. And that word has a plural, both in Hebrew, whether he was referring to the Hebrew word used in Genesis, or in Greek, if he was referring to the Greek word he used in the, in the letter to the Galatians. So in either case, there is a plural, but generally that plural is not needed to show that your descendants, as we say in English in the plural, will do something or receive something or be something. It will say your seed, and meaning all of them. So then why Paul makes that argument? And some people really get way out of their way to try to explain why he would, he would say that. But let me tell you, first of all, that that is not a mistake. Paul is not saying something that is not true. The word is in the singular, but he's leveraging that singular to make a point. And he's not basing that point only on the grammar, because that would not be necessarily a strong argument. He's basing that point on other factors. And I'm going to list five of them for you so that you can dismiss the issue of problems with the inspiration of this letter or other issues that you may encounter if you read a commentary about that. 
So first point, there is a consensus in the New Testament that the promise made to Abraham did include its fulfillment through Messiah. It's not just this passage that says that. It's basically the entire New Testament. So if you were to dismiss that, if you were to deny that, you would deny a big chunk of the New Testament. So that interpretation that Paul was using is not unique to that. Second point, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, meaning the physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac, is quite unlikely. Why is that? Because even though they influence a certain number of people and nations, they could never possibly influence all the nations in such a way that the nations will be blessed in the physical descendants of Abraham. In order to do that, they would encompass that all the people on the face of the earth would have to be descendants of Abraham. Or at least all the nations would have to have descendants of Abraham as a primary part of the population. So that is really not a suitable possibility. It just doesn't make any sense. Third point, the promised, the promises of the promise was not to be carried out through the posterity of Ishmael, who was the first son of Abraham through Hagar, the slave, but through Isaac, the son of a promise, for obvious reasons, because it was a promise it was a symbol of the trust and the faith that Abraham and all of us need to have in Christ and in God. And so it would make sense that that would be given through the son of promise and not the son of works. But that proves something else. though. It demonstrates that God always intended to restrict the application of a promise to a portion of Abraham's descendants through the son of promise. Otherwise, that would include Ishmael as well. Further than that, the fourth point I'm making is the promise was then limited even more so to portions of a posterity of Isaac. Why do I say that? Because Jacob and not Esau inherited those promises. So you see a further restriction. Then later, it was further limited to David, the son of Jesse, and to Solomon, and so on, until he was specifically limited and zeroed in to Messiah. So you see, throughout the history of Israel, it's very clear and very evident that God was limiting their promise to a specific seed, to a specific descendant in the singular, and that would be Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Paul was not really making, inventing an argument in here. He was actually showing what God had done. All right, let's get back to verse 17 now. God had an agreement with Abraham and promised to keep that agreement. The law that came 430 years later could not change that promise because that promise was not conditional to anything. One way to look at that promise that is not conditional is to look at the different types of covenants that are in Scripture. I've explained that before in previous sermons, so I'm not going to take the time to do that today, but I want to remind you of one specific covenant that God makes that is usually referred to as a royal grant. A royal grant is when the king gives you a certain land. And he says, your name, you are now being given that parcel of land and that land now belongs to you, Sir William or whatever, okay? 
So that's a royal grant. What are the conditions of that? None, except for the fact that you accept that land as your property. Period. There are other types of covenants that the king can make and says, okay, I'll be your king and I'll provide this if you do this and remain faithful to me and blah, blah, blah. That, that is a sovereign, suzerain type, uh, or suzerain vassal uh, type of covenant. Okay? And it's found a lot in the Middle Ages, for example, where the lord of different areas and different lands uh, would rule over those lands, and each lord under him was a, a vassal and uh, respond to the, to the bigger king, and then the concept of king of kings comes in. It was similar to what the king of Babylon did with the different nations that he conquered as well. I'll be providing you military protection and things of that nature if you do this and this and that. That was more the nature of a law of Moses that came 430 years later. See, a completely different type of agreement and a completely different type of purpose as well. But the promise made to Abraham was like a royal grant. Look at verse 18. Can following the law give us what God promised? Paul says absolutely not. Because if that was the case, then it would not be the promise of God that brings the, the, the things that are granted but it would be the observance of the law, which, by the way, at the time of Abraham, didn't even exist. So it couldn't be. It just cannot be that you get those promises by observing the law. The law had a different purpose, again, but those promises were given just as a grant to Abraham and his descendants, or through his descendants. The sum of a promise, once again, was that he would inherit the world. The world and God's creation was promised as the inheritance that God was now extending and giving as a free gift. It was not conditional to anything. Again, it was a royal grant. The only condition to benefiting is that you would accept the gift. And once you accept the gift, you benefit from that gift. No strings attached no conditions to be met, not dependent on any ritual or any observance or any law at all. So Paul here makes a strong argument for a royal grant cannot be conditional to a performance, otherwise it will no longer be a royal grant. It will no longer be a gift. If you say, I received a gift, but I really worked hard for that. Try telling that to the Department of Labor to explain why you didn't pay employment taxes. Oh, no, that was not a, a wages. No, that was not a pay. It was a gift. Well, hold on. A gift given in exchange for labor is called a wages or a pay. It's no longer a gift, right? And you can't convince the Department of Labor otherwise, by the way. People have tried before you, and they failed. You can't convince the IRS either. People tried that, and they failed. So even in our society, we have a clear demonstration. You can't have both. <laughs> you see, you can't say it's a gift, but I work hard for that. No, the only thing you can do with a gift is you accept it. You don't work for it. Otherwise, it's no longer a gift. It's a wages. And by the way, in our society, you pay taxes on that. So now, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So now we understand that it's a gift, 
It's not something we, we can earn. Paul makes that argument very strong and very clear. God gave a royal grant, and he gave it through a specific lineage of the descendants of Abraham that led to Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4, it said, well, I want to tell you something, Paul says to these people in the letter. You know, you look at a child who is an heir to a great estate. We've seen that in the lives of several kings. I don't remember the name of the king, you know, unfortunately how I am with names sometimes. But I remember reading the story of a king who grew up working like a servant. And the father had uh, appointed certain tutors around this prince to make sure that he would understand what it means to work. Not so that he would grow up spoiled and become a lousy king because he had no idea what everybody else was going through. No, as a prince, he had to work, he had to earn his living, he had to study and learn in the meantime, and then when he became of a certain age, he had to join the military and experience a mili- and have a military experience as part of his training. And only when he became a full adult, then he would no longer be a prince. Under training, he would now take royal duties. It's kind of interesting that some people would do that. And back in the days of Paul, a number of situations like that were clearly visible around. A child receives an inheritance. He or she is an heir of a great estate. But while still the child, the child is not administering the estate, is he? Even in our society is the same. When I wrote down my last will and testament, and my children were under the age of 18, I had to appoint guardians for them. Because otherwise the state would take over. Now, unfortunately, I did not have a great estate to pass on to them, so their dreams are shattered. But nevertheless, the the issue of guardianship was very much present at that time because they were not of age as yet. So a minor, even in our society, cannot administer his or her inheritance until they become of age. And it was the same at the time of Paul. So here, Paul says, well, look, if you look at a servant and you look at a child who is an heir but is not yet of age to receive the inheritance, there's really not much difference between both of them. They're both under tutor. They're both learning to work and learning to do things. There's no particular difference from one and the other because they don't have access. Neither one of them have access to a great deal of resources. It's kind of interesting because it's referring to our previous condition, either as under the law if we are Jews or under the influence of the world if we are pagans or Gentiles. Then he says that while he is a child, he must obey those who are chosen to care for him, the tutors. And by the way, you probably remember Paul writing to Timothy that the law was a tutor for Timothy. Uh Uh-huh. You see the purpose of the law now. It's different from the promise of Abraham. The purpose of the law is to hold the people in tutelage, in teaching them certain lessons, teaching them certain things about life and death, teaching them certain things about their need for Messiah, and so on. But then, of course, when the child reaches the age set by his father, and in that society was not determined by law for everyone, the father who left the inheritance would 
establish an age at which the child will become eligible to administer the estate. So then, when the age is reached, the child no is no longer treated as a servant, he's no longer under the tutor, he's no longer under the, the mentor, but he's now free to do what? Free to manage the estate, free to uh, benefit and profit, if, if that's the case, from the estate. And then Paul says the same thing for us. We were once just like the children. We were slaves to the useless rules. And by the way, if you're looking at that from a Jewish perspective, it does not mean, useless does not mean that those rules that God gave through the Old Testament laws were serving no purpose. But they were incapable of giving what was promised. They were useless because you could observe all those rules as much as you want, but they will not give you that inheritance. They'd served no purpose in that sense because their purpose was different. The purpose of the law is to show you that, there is, that God has a will, that will is clearly defined, and that we break that will, we are under sin, and we need a Savior, we need a Messiah. That was the purpose of the law. It was the tutoring that the law was offering. So it was not useless in the sense of having no purpose, because it didn't have a clear purpose, but it could not produce the promises, it could not give that inheritance that was promised to Abraham. But Paul doesn't just address here the, the rules of the Old Testament. He also says that while we were slaves, we were slaves to the useless rules of this world. Now, that can be understood in two, in two different ways. And I really don't think it really makes much of a difference because in both of the senses, it has the same meaning. All right, so if we I understand that as applied to the Judaizers that he was addressing, that would mean that not in the sense of pagan, but rather the teachings that are according to the physical things of this world, the things that we can touch the things that we can see, the things that we can do. And again, it goes back to the fact that the law was based on actions and performances according to what? The elements of the world, which are what? A physical water, a physical action, all right? A physical animal, a physical sacrifice. They were all things related to the physical realm of this world to reflect and symbolize spiritual ones, but nevertheless, they were restricted to the physical. If you understand in the sense of the Gentiles, then the, the, the things, the rules of this world simply means the rules of the world they grew up in, and definitely they don't help in getting the, the inheritance of God. You know, they might have, they obviously had to live under certain rules, the rules of their land. The fact that they were good citizens did not, automatically make them heirs of the promises of God. And guess what? We still have people today in our society, people that still think, look, I'm a good citizen, I'm a good person, all right? I haven't killed anybody, I haven't robbed anything, I didn't go rob a bank or anything like that, I'm a good person, I'm a good member of this society, therefore, I am entitled to... The answer is absolutely nothing. Okay? You've just done your duty. Period. Being a good citizen has not entitled you to anything. It's just prevented you from being under the penalty of the law. And that's the same with the law. 
Then Paul says, when the right time came, however, God, and you see the triune God at work in here, God sent his son, born of a woman, to live under the law and to be perfect in the fulfillment of the law, the only human that did. And God did so that, did that so that he could buy freedom for all of us, so that he could pay the penalty for that violating the law that we are guilty of, and so make us all his children in and through Christ. And again, see that promise through his descendant, Messiah, I will bless all nations. Because that promise now through Christ is open to all the nations. That promise is made accessible to all people of all races, of all colors, of all backgrounds. And therefore, what the Judaizers were saying to the Galatians makes no sense. You don't have to become a Jew to be part of those promises, to be part of that inheritance. You, that inheritance now is made possible because of the promise to Abraham and the promise reflecting all nations being blessed in Messiah. You just don't need to be of a particular racial background or a particular dis, you know, uh, descendant of somebody specific to, to be part of those promises. But he says, you're God's children. That's what makes you heirs. Not the fact they are the sons of uh, Isaac and Jacob and Judah and, and so on and, and David or no. It's just you're part of the promises. You are part of an inheritance. You are an heir of an inheritance because through Christ we are made God's children. And that's why God sent the Holy Spirit in our hearts. A spirit that cries out, Daddy. Abba is like Daddy in English. Father. It is an affectionate way of talking to a father. So now we're no longer a slave. We are God's children. And he's going to give us what he promised because we're his children. Not because we do, but because we are. Is it beginning to make sense? So now that we are not saved by the law should be extremely clear. But what is the deeper meaning of what Paul is saying here? Well, by faith, Abraham was regarded as righteous, not because he kept some specific laws or rituals, but because he believed in God and acted accordingly. Likewise, by grace, God gave Abraham the promises that the world would be his and his descendants, and all nations would be blessed in his descendant, Messiah. By the same faith, believing in his promises and living accordingly, we all have been made partakers of that inheritance. It is a gift given to us through Messiah. But what does it mean, that gift entail? What does that mean? Does it simply mean that one day we're going to have a bunch of money, a bunch of property? It simply means that we are God's children. And as such, will inherit all things in him and with him. But the point that is relevant in here is not so much what God gives us, but the fact that God gives us an identity, an identity that will never be removed, an identity that was always, is always going to be there, an identity that is eternal, an identity that even transcends death. We are his children, and a million years from now we will say the same thing. We are his children. It's not what we do, it's who we are. 
That doesn't mean that we break every law in the book. His children don't do that. It's not consistent with who we are. And But we are currently in the process of learning what it means to be his children. We are in the process of learning what it means to act according to who we are. That's a process of sanctification. So by that faith, we, together with Abraham, are inheritors or heirs of the world, of all of God's creation. And that not by works, but by simply saying, thank you, God, accepting his gift, accepting the identity that he has for us, and realizing that we are his children, and as such, we are heirs of his promises. And what difference does it make in your life, in my life? I act in my line of work in a certain way because that's what I do. I act in the church in my official role, if you want to call it that way, because what I do. But you take away my job, take away my pastorate, take away everything, my home, my car, my family, take away my clothes and replace them with rags, put me under the bridge, and I am still a child of God, and nothing has changed in terms of who I am. He may change what I have, he may change what I can do, Take away my physical ability to move and I'm still a child of God. Take away my life and I'm still a child of God. It does not depend on what I have. It does not depend on what I can do. It doesn't depend on where I'm living. It doesn't depend on the social status I'm in. I could be a slave. I could be a lord. I could be a king. I could be in a jail because of my belief in Christ. I could be anywhere. I could be dead in a grave because of my belief in Christ. But I will still be a child of God. That never changes because it's not dependent on my social status. It's not dependent on what I do or don't do. It's dependent on who I am in Christ because of the promises of God. And that's the same for all of you. And that's the same for all of us. That's what changes and I wish that people in this world would understand. I wish that people like that young man who define themselves in what they do, they would understand that they don't have to do that. You don't have to look for your identity in your job, in your training, in what you do. You have to look for your identity in Christ and find it there and it will be there today and tomorrow and forever. And there will be absolutely no problem whatsoever. You will never hear a person saying, who am I? Now that you've taken away my training, now you've taken away my job, now you've taken away my role, who am I? What is left of me? And the answer will resonate. I am a child of God. I am an heir of his promises. I am an heir of all things. And I'm looking forward to the day when I will be of age. I'm going to be looking forward to the day when I finally graduate, having learned the lessons of life, and I'm going to be in His presence forever, enjoying forever the inheritance that God has for me. What a difference that will make in this life. And that's the lesson that we have here. 
That's the lesson that Paul was conveyed to the Galatians. That's the lesson that Paul is still conveyed to us today through his writings, through his letters that God inspired him to share with us. And it's a big lesson. And it's a lesson that you and I must keep sharing day in and day out. And you know what? It's so simple. And yet, it's so incredibly profound. Father, thank you so much for making us who we are in Christ. Thank you so much for giving us that promise, your inheritance, an awesome, undescribable, amazing inheritance that encompasses all things. And like you said to your prophet Isaiah, Father, it will continue to grow because of the increase of your government, of the increase of your peace that will never be, ever be an end. Thank you for your promises. Please change our hearts and grant us to be able to see ourselves not on the basis of what we do, but on the, way, on the basis of who you made us to be in Christ. Praise you, we thank you, and we ask you that you would change the hearts and the lives and the minds of our communities as well, that your light might shine through, and that beam of hope that holds us together may be shared with everyone around us. This we thank you for, praise you for, and ask you for, in Jesus' name. Amen.